The following is a message by Joel Bain, the lead pastor at Grace Family Church in St. Catherine, Jamaica. To learn more about Grace Family Church, visit gracefam.church. Good morning, everyone. The scripture reading is taken from the book of Luke, chapter 24, verses 1 through to 35. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. And they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the 11 and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other woman with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. And he saw the linen clothes by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, what things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all the prophets had spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. 
So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Thank you, Jess. Let's pray. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into that same image from one degree of glory to another. All this comes from the Lord who is a spirit. Lord, the work that is necessary, the work that must happen through preaching is a work that I cannot do and that we cannot do for ourselves. But Lord, you not only can do it, but you're committed to doing it. So we ask for your spirit to be with us so that we would become what you want us to be. In Jesus' name. As a 12-year-old boy, the Jamaican master potter, Cecil Ball, would walk twice a month from his home in Bangor Ridge, Portland, over the Blue Mountains to take provisions for his elder brother in Kingston. Baugh was born in 1908. For those of us born much closer to the end of that century, much less those born in this century, the thought of such a walk is jaw-dropping, isn't it? But what was much more significant for the young Baugh, in fact, what shaped the rest of his life, was what happened on one of those journeys. On one of his trips, Baugh met and made friends with three potters. He was fascinated as he watched them work amazed at the skill involved and the simple beauty of their creations. Baugh was expected to pursue a career in engineering, like his elder brother. But as he spent time with these potters, his hopes were transformed. So affected was he that he decided that this would be his life's pursuit, even though pottery at the time was thought of as poor people's work. After studying under several teachers, both in Jamaica and in Britain, he later went on in his life to co-found the Jamaica School of Arts and Crafts, which is today known as the Edna Manley College for the Visual and Performing Arts. He died at age 96 in 2005. During his life, Baugh made pots for people including Queen Elizabeth and Nelson Mandela. Cecil Baugh's story shows that the course of one's life can be forever changed by who you meet as you're going where you're going. Just like Cecil Baugh, the two disciples at the center of this story in the Gospel of Luke were on a journey that surely they had made many times. Just like him, they met someone who dramatically affected the course of the rest of their lives. As they spent time with him, their hopes were transformed. And we as disciples can benefit from giving attention to this passage because following Jesus is hard and confusing for us too. And their story was written down 
to help us as we walk our own roads. So let's take a look at what happened on the road. Our focus will be verses 13 through 35 of this passage. So I'm going to walk you through it, stopping to examine some incidents and some interactions. And I'll break it into two parts on the two headings. So first, let's look at two disheartened disciples and a stranger. Two disheartened disciples and a stranger. That very day, those words take us back to the beginning of the chapter where Jessica started the scripture reading. That day was a very important day. It was the Sunday when Jesus rose from the dead. Now, even though Resurrection Sunday is a tremendously important day to us still, we who live years after the event don't feel the emotions that these disciples felt on that day. For them, it was just a bewildering day. These two disciples had probably woken up that morning, opened their eyes, and then had that moment that would be familiar to any of us who has grieved or has walked through depression. That moment when the promise of a new day is swallowed up by the tidal wave of memories of the previous day's events. That moment when you first remember what the dull aching in your soul really is. Jesus was dead. And their hopes had been buried with him in a tomb cut in stone on a Jerusalem hillside. And they were confused and afraid and heartbroken and lost in a world that just a few days earlier would have seemed so familiar. And that morning, their fear and confusion and grief was interrupted not by hope, at least not initially, but by more confusion. Jesus was dead. He was supposed to be dead. Some of their friends had watched him die. The women from the company of disciples who had gone to the tomb early that Sunday morning had stood at a distance watching Jesus die that past Friday afternoon. They had stayed with him until the end, and they followed to see where his body had been taken. That morning they went with spices they had prepared in hopes that they would be able to anoint the body of their dead master. This would help to control the odors as Jesus' body decomposed. Every one of his disciples thought he was dead because he had died and had been buried. So the bizarre and unbelievable story that those women had told that morning had not brought the comfort it was intended to bring for these two disciples. It did not rekindle hope. It only added new layers of confusion to their grieving, fearful hearts. As I read a little bit in this story and thought about the women bringing the news to these disciples and them just not knowing what to do with that, um, yeah, my thoughts went in many different directions, but this is the one I chose to pursue. I am so grateful for the women in my life who have pointed me to Jesus. Uh, for my own mother who's here this morning, for my wife. Uh, I'm so grateful to see faith in my sister and in so many friends. Um, yeah, we are just grateful as a family to have so many women of faith among us already. So, now we find these, these two disciples later that day making the seven-mile walk home from Jerusalem to the village of Emmaus. Jerusalem was built on a hill, so they were walking downhill, but these guys could not get any lower than they felt at the start of the journey. As they walked, they were talking with each other about all the things they had seen and experienced in the past few days. Now, the original text gives a sense that their conversation was an intense discussion. And so absorbed were they that when another man walking in on the same road in the same direction caught up with them and matched strides, they didn't pay him any mind. Now, we know that this stranger was Jesus. But they didn't. 
The text says their eyes were kept from recognizing him. I mean, that's the stuff of science fiction, isn't it? The best way to read between the lines is to recognize that God did something to their perception so that they couldn't recognize who had joined them on the road. But what was Jesus doing there? Surely he didn't happen to be also walking along the road from Jerusalem, heading in the direction of Emmaus. I mean, what does the risen Savior of the world do with his time on the first day back from the dead? Well, what Jesus did was to care for his disciples. Oh, the kindness of our Savior. He knew that these men who had followed him were utterly lost and in despair as they walked home. And he came to walk with them, to listen to them, to ask them questions, to draw them out, to rebuke them and to restore their hope. No, these guys weren't even top-level disciples. You know, the kind who'd get a corner office with their name on the door, or better yet, their names chiseled on the foundations of the New Jerusalem. We don't even know the name of one of them. But Jesus came looking for them and came alongside them in their grief and confusion. And Jesus has not changed. He still comes looking for lost disciples. When Jesus asked them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? The question literally stopped them in their tracks. Their sadness written all over their faces. His question wouldn't have made any sense if he had not been listening to them talk for a while. And the reaction of Cleopas shows his confusion at the question. How could anyone be coming from Jerusalem and not know what had happened there? The original language is akin to asking in shock, what rock were you living under for the past few days? To not know what went on. But Jesus patiently draws them out with another question. What things? And now Cleopas tells Jesus his own story. About the man from Nazareth who was a powerful prophet who had God's approval and the people's approval. But the Jewish leaders who were the religious gatekeepers not only rejected him, but orchestrated his crucifixion. And here's where their account of Jesus becomes personal. And where we see the beating, broken heart of their story. But we had hoped he was the one to redeem Israel. The irony, as one commentator puts it, was what should have been the day of hope realized was for them the day of hope extinguished. Cleopas goes on to report to Jesus the events of earlier that day. And then once again, in great irony, he ends his story, perhaps looking up at Jesus at the moment by saying, him they did not see. Here's something important to realize about Cleopas' story. His whole account was factually correct. It was true, yet insufficient. It was true, yet incomplete. He had a lot of the right data, but he didn't, he didn't know what to do to put the facts together in front of him properly. And there are a lot of people, both back then and now, in a similar situation. They're willing to acknowledge a lot of the same facts that Cleopas detailed, but they can't or they won't go any further. I had a conversation a few months ago on a flight with a young lady who was very firm in her affirmation that Jesus was significant, that he was one of the spiritual guides worth listening to. And based on how she spoke, I'm sure she would not have contradicted any of the details that Cleopas gives in his account. But that seemed to be as far as she was willing to go. When it came to the idea of putting her hope in Jesus as the one who would redeem and rescue her, she didn't think she needed any rescuing. So she wasn't interested in that. 
If you spent much time with puzzles, as I did as a child, I remember my parents would have some of these massive thousand-piece puzzles, and you'd kind of look at it all in the box and be like, what am I supposed to make of this? Yeah, but the thing about it is doing puzzles is next to impossible without that picture on the cover of the box that tells you what the puzzle should look like. The only way the facts about Jesus are going to affect our lives in the way they should is if we see the picture they form clearly and believe and continue to believe that God has accomplished something quite so fantastic as his great salvation. We who follow Jesus know are different from these disciples. They were already, uh, sorry, we are already aware of the whole picture that they didn't yet see at this point in the story. We know that the stranger they were talking to on the road was Jesus risen from the dead. Yet daily we face the same danger they did. The danger of walking through our lives, failing to understand, believe, and therefore live in the light of what Jesus has accomplished. I mean, isn't it true that sometimes we don't live as if Jesus is alive? That even though we already know the good news, sometimes we are hopeless and downcast as they were? Aren't we sometimes blinded by our disappointment or grief or even by our success so that Jesus appears to be less significant than he really is? Isn't it true that sometimes we don't live as if in Christ our sins are forgiven, death has been defeated, and our glory is sure? Isn't it true that sometimes we don't live as if every suffering and every success is only a fleeting thing, and that our gifts and our griefs are meant in this life to make us look to Jesus and long for Jesus and become more like Jesus? So how is Jesus going to help these two men? And in doing so, how is he going to help us also we who often lose sight of our hope in him and lose our way. How is he going to challenge the many, both back then and today, who are willing to acknowledge that clearly he was someone of note, but don't believe that he was who he claimed to be? Well, Jesus' solution was to show these disciples that the whole picture had already been given to them. That it was right under their noses, but they had failed to see it and believe it. So let's look then at the second half of this story and see how he does this. And this is our heading. In the word and at the table. In the word and at the table. Now Jesus begins to speak. And he begins with expressing his disappointment as he rebukes them for their foolishness and for, their, and for the unresponsiveness of their hearts. What was ailing these two disciples was a matter both of the mind and heart. Of both faulty thinking and a failure to believe. And the problem did not stem from them not knowing their Bibles. The problem stemmed from the fact that they were reading selectively and believing selectively. Their whole expectation of Messiah was based on believing what the Old Testament said. But they, like their teachers and countrymen, had omitted, had omitted, had omitted massive parts of what was said about the Messiah. Jesus immediately points out what they had missed. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? There's a warning here for us about taking an a la carte approach to reading our Bibles, where we cherry-pick and polish and prize the promises we prefer and turn up our noses in disdain or confusion at the unappetizing parts. You know, the parts that tell us that we too are called to suffer if we are to share in Jesus' glory. Enough said about that for now. Jesus, in, in just a few sentences, is saying some really important things. 
He's saying that his suffering, the scorning, the verbal abuse, the whipping, the painful ordeal of crucifixion was necessary. And if they had been reading their Bibles properly, they'd have known that. It wasn't an unexpected travesty of justice. It was necessary because it was God's plan. And Jesus now does for them something absolutely astounding. He takes them on a journey through the Old Testament as they walk those miles. And he interprets for them all the things that were written about him from Genesis to Malachi. And what a journey that must have been. They probably completely forgot that they were walking as they were transported through stories of their forefathers and songs and prophecies and shown how they were all picturing, pointing to, and prophesying the Messiah whom God would send. And how absolutely ridiculous it was, yet kind and humble on his part, for the Messiah himself to be their guide and narrator, and for them not to know it the whole time. So many of us, particularly those of us who preach, have wished that we could be like a fourth guy who came up on that road and matched stride with those three, pretended to mind our own business and kind of leaned in to listen to everything Jesus was saying about himself. To listen to the word made flesh, explaining the living and written word, yes. and how he was the hero of every story that yes. God had written through the lives and circumstances yes. recorded there. Yes. What Jesus did for those disciples makes sense of what the rest of disciples and apostles went on to do. As they preached and wrote about him after his ascension, they too worked hard to show that Jesus, that who Jesus was and what Jesus did and what it all meant was written in the pages of the scriptures beforehand. That's why there are so many quotations and allusions to the Old Testament in the New Testament. They were not innovating. They were being faithful. What Jesus did here also has shaped the way that we, as Grace Family Church, want to preach and disciple and counsel and share our faith. One of our values is that we are gospel-centered. That has most certainly become a buzzword in the last few, word, last few years. But here's how we describe what that means to us on our website. It's all about Jesus. From beginning to end, the Bible points us to the amazing reality that God has been merciful to sinners in Jesus. By his grace, we want to display God's glory by celebrating, proclaiming, and living the gospel as a community of believers by the power of the Spirit. So we want that value to be seen both from the pulpit and among us as people. What that looks like from the pulpit is that as we preach through the Bible, we will maintain in our preaching the centrality of Christ that is a feature of the scriptures itself. We want to be faithful to the fact that even when the Bible tells us what we are to do, whether it is teaching on contentment or parenting or work or sexual ethics or living well with your neighbors, it is always connected with what Jesus has done. We are committed to keeping him in glorious view. And this is how you should judge us. Are we pointing you to Christ in the Word? Are we helping you to see Him more clearly and respond to that revelation? That's the heart of our job. We need you to hold us to that. What gospel centrality looks like among us as a community is us growing together in our ability to speak the truths of Jesus fluently to those around us in everyday life. We want to continue to learn how Jesus is better than everything else in life. And to remind each other of the treasure we have in him as we walk together through whatever comes in 2019 and beyond. We recently concluded a small group study called the Gospel Fluency Handbook. 
uh, with many of those who have become a part of our core team and some others. That study and our interaction around it has laid a good foundation for us, a foundation we must now build on. And we're looking forward to seeing which of you the Lord will lead to join us as we continue to grow together. The journey Jesus took these two disciples on through the Old Testament came to an end when they reached Emmaus. And Jesus continued to walk as if he intended to go on, you know, down the road, maybe to another town. But these disciples persuaded him to stay with them. Yeah, you see, it was getting dark and that was no time for a traveler to be on the road. So Jesus agreed. When they sat together to eat their evening meal, Jesus assumed the role of host, taking the bread, blessing it and breaking it and giving it to them. In that moment, God moved again. Eyes that had been kept from recognizing him were now opened. They now saw that the stranger who had walked those miles with them and interpreted the scriptures for them was the hero of those same scriptures. He was Jesus. He was the object of their now rekindled hopes, their Messiah who had died but was alive again. And then he vanished. (laughs) You know, these stories are strange. But Jesus vanished because he didn't come back to stay. It wasn't time for that. He had already given them what they needed on the road. We know this because of their reaction after he vanished. They didn't say, where is he? And start looking under the table or lament the fact that he didn't stay so they could give him a good man hug. They now compared notes and marveled at what had happened on the road. Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road? While he opened to us the scriptures? Slow, unresponsive hearts had become burning hearts over the course of those miles and minutes. In the face of seeing the risen Christ with their now opened eyes, what these men reflected on was how the eyes of their hearts were opened to see him in the scriptures. These days there are elements of our Christian culture that place a strong emphasis on experiences of the presence of God. And it's not that genuine experiences of the presence of God are not good gifts. But I can't help but wonder how the quest I see in some cases for experiences compares with the value we place on the scriptures. The work of the triune God in this story shows how important it is to God that we see Jesus clearly in the scriptures. Based on their own reflections, that was what rekindled the hopes of these two disciples. Jesus wants his disciples to understand the Bible so that they will continually hope in him. Is that what you hunger for? Do you value the scriptures the way Jesus did? And do we value them as a source of our hope? And with their hopes rekindled, these two set out to return to Jerusalem immediately, even though it was dark, to share what had happened on the road and how Jesus was known to them in the breaking of bread. And when they arrived, they found the other disciples sharing their own story of Peter seeing the risen Lord also. So, what's at the heart of the story? It all comes down to this, to this big idea. The risen Christ points his people to his word so that they would continually hope in him. The risen Christ points his people to his word so that they would continually hope in him. 
And we don't just need this once. We need this over and over again, every Sunday and every day, because our hope tends to deflate as it's battered by difficult circumstances, as it's battered by mundane days, and as it's battered even by things going really well. Seeing Jesus in his word, understanding who, who he has become for us, and what he has accomplished, and what the future holds, is the constant need we have as we journey down life's road. Let me conclude. Look in your Bibles at the next section of this chapter of Luke. Do you know that there are words spoken here that connect that great and glorious Sunday to this glorious Sunday across the gulf of time and space? Words that connect a small gathering in Jerusalem to a small gathering in Caymanus Estate? You see, what happened on the road happened again in the place where the eleven and the others were gathered. Jesus himself joined them. And as suddenly... Or as suddenly as he had vanished from the table with those two disciples, he was present among this larger group as they talked about their recent encounters with him. And he had to really convince them that he was not a ghost because normal people don't appear in the middle of a crowd of people. So he blessed them with peace and he assured them that he was truly alive again. Not some kind of ghostly spiritual existence, but a new kind of bodily existence that can still enjoy a good piece of broiled fish. And now he did for this larger group of disciples what he had done for the two on the road to Emmaus. He pointed them to the scriptures, to everything written about him all over the Old Testament. Look at verses 45 to 48. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And surely now they marveled, not just at the sight of their Savior who had died a few days earlier, but also at the sight of their Savior in the words which made sense of him, written thousands and hundreds of years before that day. And surely now they began to understand how he planned to continue that work. The work spoken of in the scriptures through them. God's plan was to save a people for himself from all nations by forgiving their sins in Christ. And these disciples were to be witnesses who would proclaim this news far and wide. Our gathering here today is not a random occurrence. We are here because many of us have responded to the proclamation of the good news about Jesus by turning from our sins and from our confidence in ourselves and by putting our faith in Jesus for our forgiveness and for our future. Our gathering on this first Sunday in 2019 is a small part of the fulfillment of words God spoke in the Old Testament thousands of years ago, even in Psalm 67 that we started with this morning, that your way may be known on earth. Your saving power among all nations. This Sunday is a result of the work of Christ on the cross that was vindicated in his triumphant resurrection from the dead on that great Sunday. This Sunday, this gathering is the fruit of the lives of those disciples who witnessed to the saving work of the risen Christ, many at the cost of their lives, and the generations of disciples who did the same so that the gospel would reach us. We exist because of that witness. And to continue that witness. Our risen Lord is gathering a group of disciples under the name Grace Family Church. So that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed here in Caymanus Estate and beyond. Wherever our roads take us. And it's our joy today 
to join many other such gatherings of disciples in this nation and around the world. May God's Spirit, which is in us, continually open our minds to understand His Word as we gather around it and fill us with His power so that many others would come to faith in Christ through our witness. Let the peoples praise you, O God. Let all the peoples praise you. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful to be witnesses and participants in what you are doing. Truly, the love that flows from the cross has flowed to us also uh, through the lives sacrificed by many who spent their lives ensuring that the message of salvation, the message of repentance for the forgiveness of sins reached us. God, we pray uh, on this landmark day that this wouldn't be a landmark because it happens only once, but it would be a landmark because it continues, Lord. That the work you're doing among us, that the work you're doing of gathering people here under the name Grace Family Church, Lord, that you would do that work by your spirit, that you would energize it, that you would draw people, Lord, so that we can be a people who pursue you together and so that we can be a people who pursue others for you together. We ask your blessing on us now and for your presence to be among us continually. In Jesus' name, amen. You have just listened to a message by Joel Bain, the lead pastor at Grace Family Church in St. Catherine, Jamaica. To learn more about Grace Family Church, visit gracefam.church.